The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, so good to be with you. So good to be in this room with you. Excited to look at God's Word together. We are going to continue our study through the book of Revelation. Today we're going to finish off uh, the entire chapter of Revelation 14. Uh, just so you know, moving forward, uh, this is going to be our last sermon in Revelation for a couple weeks. We're going to do a series on the heart of Jesus for his people through Palm Sunday, Easter, the week after. And so as we get to that, I just want to encourage you to uh, invite your friends. Um, it's been a while, right? Maybe for some of us, think of somebody in your life, a relationship we have. Who, who are you uh, praying for, wanting to share the gospel with? Invite a friend to church. And uh, the next several weeks are going to be, I trust, great for that. So I want to encourage you, challenge you with that. But today it's going to be Revelation chapter 14. We're going to do verse 6 all the way to 20. So Revelation 14, 6 all the way to 20. Are you ready? Are you sure? <laughs> Revelation 6, Re Revelation 14, 6 to 20. This is God's word. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and, on its, and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap is come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth. And the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. The angel has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. 
So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you, Lord, uh, in the face of a difficult text, a sober text. Um, In some ways, it's hard to understand, but in other ways, it may be harder to accept than it is to understand. And so we pray now, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us richly. God, we trust that this Christianity thing is not something we conjure up on our own. We trust that it is your work, that you have come and still come, and you engage with your people, you claim your people, you, you make us alive, you introduce yourself to us, you bring us to yourself, and then you keep forming us, you keep sticking with us, you continue to reveal yourself. And so our trust is in you this morning, that you would speak, that you would act. And Lord, we know you have said you do this through your word, so... It's our prayer, it's my prayer that you'd help me to teach this word faithfully and clearly, and best of all, that you would speak, uh, you would speak your word to each person here, who they are, their story, where they are with you, Lord. You reveal yourself to each one, that they would trust Jesus Christ and they would endure with faith in him till the end, so they might know your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Can you think of a, situa- a situation in your life where you really had to focus on endurance? Is there ever a time in a life or a season in your life where this was something you really had to press in on? Maybe it's something as uh, simple as trying to improve in a sport or with a musical instrument. You got to keep at it, right? Keep working. Maybe it was a difficult class at school or a project at work. A lot of times it can be in a relationship, a difficult relationship where you need endurance. It's tough, right, with endurance. But you have to press on. You have to keep going through the difficulty. Well, if you can think of a time like that in your life, let me ask you this. What was it that helped motivate that endurance? Well, I guess I gave myself away. How is it that you keep enduring? You have to have the motivation, right? You you have to see... Motivation means you have strong reasons for why this endurance is worth it. There's a a treasure, there's a value at the end that's going to keep you going even when it's difficult. Endurance takes motivation. We also know that endurance is such an important aspect of the Christian life, isn't it? It's essential. What did Jesus say? He said it many times. The one who endures to the end, will be saved. That's powerful. That's serious. Uh, Do you need Christ's salvation? And do you want to be the one who experienced the the full result of that at Christ's coming? Do Do you want to taste all its treasure? You need to endure. You need to endure to the end. So we see here that real Christians, right, they really 
endure. Not perfectly. Let me just make that clear. We're not claiming you become a Christian, you become perfect. That would disqualify, let's see, yes, all of us, right? Uh, That's not what we're claiming. But there is something about faithfulness to where you hold fast to the truth of Christianity, no matter the pressure, and you hold fast to the claim on what the gospel does in people's lives. You hold fast. You hold fast to trusting Christ and wanting to live in a way that pleases him because he has saved you. You're going to endure if you're a Christian. There'll be ups, there'll be downs, sometimes really awful downs, but you'll come back. Christians endure to the end. And we know this will sometimes be very difficult. The Bible, our life experience is clear. There's going to be all sorts of pressures motivating you to give up on faithfulness to Christ. There's going to be all sorts of pressures kind of tantalizing you to compromise on the gospel itself or the call of the gospel, what it calls for from you. The world has its wiles. The world gives its pressures The world sometimes even persecutes. There's loads of motivations that want to get us to no longer endure in faith in Christ or deny his call in our lives. And that's really what Revelation 14 is about, I think. As I read it, you heard it's a provocative chapter. Quite provocative, full of strange, troubling imagery. Three angelic preachers giving these hard messages, and then a picture of two harvests at the end of the world, and the one last one blood flowing in ways we don't really want to imagine. What's going on? Well, we'll we'll try to unpack the details, but I think it's clear what the core idea is. It's found in verse 12. Did you see it? Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for what? The endurance of the saints, saints, holy ones, those who belong to God through Jesus Christ. Here's a call for their endurance, and you endure in two ways. You keep the commandments of God and your faith in Christ. You hold to the gospel, and because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you want to live in a way that pleases God, even when everything around you is saying, no, this way is better. If you do that, there'll be a cost. No, Here's a call for the endurance of the, of, the, of the saints. So that's why I think these visions then that we're going to see, verses 6 to 20, and the truth behind them are meant to give you motivation to endure. To endure, you need what? Motivation. These visions are here to give you that motivation so that as you take in the truth of what these symbols mean, your heart more and more will say, I want to make it to the end. I'm going to keep going to the end. I'm not going to stop. I want, I want to keep going. So that's what this is about. Five motivating reasons to endure. So just to back up a little bit, so far in Revelation, we've seen uh, seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets. Now we're in seven visions. The way I've been teaching it, basically we're, each one of these sets of seven gives a symbolic look at the age we're in now between Jesus' first and second coming. So these symbols teach us truths that are for all Christians at all times as we wait for Jesus' return. And that's true of the fifth and sixth visions we're going to take in this morning. So here's five motivating reasons to endure from these visions we're going to see. So if you're taking notes, the reclamation, 
the fall, the drink, the rest, and the reckoning. Five reasons to endure, no matter the cost. The reclamation, the fall, the drink, the rest, the reckoning. So let's dive in and may the Lord encourage our endurance. So we see verses 6 to 7 here, this first angel flying directly overhead with a gospel to proclaim. Now just so you know, I am not inclined to take these angels literally. Uh, We've seen it on every page. I think it's again true in this chapter. When Jesus comes back, he's not actually going to be swinging a reaper's blade. But he will be harvesting his people. Um, And people aren't actually like grapes. Um, But there will be judgment. And so these are symbols that teach us real truths. I'm not saying the truths aren't literally true. They are. I'm saying these are symbols used to teach us these truths. And so I don't expect an angel actually flying over some people preaching. I think the major way this message comes through is actually through God's church. But more than the point of this first vision is from God's church, I think context shows us the point of this vision is for God's church. The point of this vision is to motivate you to endure. Let's see how that works. So first of all, you get an eternal gospel coming. What's gospel mean? Anybody know? Good news. It means good news. It should be, it should be sweet. It should be beautiful. It's good news. And then eternal. What does that mean? Well, it is long, right? <laughs> um, it's not stopping. It's unshakable, unbreakable, unchangeable. An eternal gospel. So it's a descriptor of this is the way reality is. You want to respond to this. And it's proclaimed to those who dwell on the earth. So it's another use of this, kind of this phrase, earth dwellers in Revelation. That's always a title for people who have not trusted Christ. People who aren't Christians in Revelation are called earth dwellers. Why is that, you might think? Well, here's the reason. It's because this world is all they have. This world is where all the hopes are. This world's where all the treasures are. They, they don't see a need to trust Jesus or endure for him. Whereas for Christians, it's different. This world, it's not our home. It's, it's not ultimately our citizenship. It's, it's not ultimately our hope. We're just passing through. And so this is a gospel going to really the entire earth. of um, this, this gospel going out, proclaimed to the world. And did you hear what this gospel is? Fear God. Give him glory. Worship him for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, some of you, if I've done a halfway decent job at preaching the gospel these last 15 years, and if I say to you, here's a gospel, fear God, give him glory, and worship him for the hour of his judgment has come, are any of you like wriggling in your seat a little bit? Let me unpack this, okay? This is a law, right, from God's throne. Fear God. That means you reverence him and you honor him above all things. Uh, It says, give him glory. That means you see God as most valuable, most beautiful, most delightful. You delight in him. Worship him. That means you're devoted to him in your mind, heart, soul, and strength. 
Give him glory because his judgment is coming on those who haven't and won't. Is that message good? It is good. Is it true? It is true. Is it good news to you? Have you always feared God? Do do you always uh, give him glory? Do you worship him alone? Heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? The hour of his judgment is coming. How many of you would say, oh, I'm good, sweet. Bring the hour of judgment. I've met people like that. Maybe you're one of those people, oh, I'm good. I, I want to say with all humility, like, wake up, you know, look at yourself. Have you kept the law of a holy God? And so we wonder, well, how could this be the gospel? And I, I guess I want to tell you, it's not actually the gospel. You'll notice the angel is preaching an eternal gospel. That article, the, it's missing. And every other time in the New Testament when you hear the phrase, the gospel, it's always about Jesus and the grace of God we find in him. So this is a gospel with the law in it. So, so we're, we, need, we need now ask, well, how is it a gospel? Here's two ways it's a gospel. Number one, here's two ways it's good news. This message is meant to do something in your heart Something that would make you say, if you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, something that would make you say, what do I do if I haven't kept this law? And you know what the Apostle John might say to you um, if you asked him that question? Because that's who wrote Revelation, right? What would John say to you if you were able to go to him and say, well, what do I do if I haven't feared God, given him glory, or worshipped him? What do I do? Have you heard this one? John 3.16. What did John write? God so loved the world. He gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's a way, there's a way where you don't have to fear the hour of judgment. And so this this gospel of the truth and God coming, it's good news in the sense that it could push you to repentance and to look to Jesus to save you. But here's another way it's good news, and I think this is the main way in context. The verse here says, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So what is that emphasizing about God and why you should fear and worship him? It's emphasizing that he's the creator. Have you ever wondered why God has the right to drop a law on you and be like, this is how I want you to live? And you don't get to go, uh, I don't want that one. You know, how come it's just, no, this, this is how it is. Well, he, A main reason is God made you. You're not self-invented. And God is over you as your designer and authority. And he's the creator. And so it's one reason sin is so bad because here created things are saying to the creator, we don't want you, get out the way. We'll be our own gods. So it's grievous, it's ugly, it's rebellious. 
Well, the reason this is good news here, this first vision is good news for Christians is here we are, right? Languishing in a broken world, a world that due to human sin is in rebellion against God. And you know what this angel is saying? He's saying God is coming to reclaim his creation. He's coming to reclaim what's his. Imagine it's World War II. You're an allied soldier in a prison camp. And imagine you hear the allies have won and they're coming. Imagine you hear that. And you would think, well, for the soldiers keeping me here, that might not be very good news. But for you in that cell, how are you feeling? That's good news. The victory is coming. That's why this first vision is good news for Christians. God is going to reclaim his creation. He's going to renew it. He's going to take it back. He's going to make it the way it should be. It's coming. Does that help you endure? Does it help you endure to know that this is not the way it will always be? That he's coming to reclaim what's his? Does it give you hope to keep going? It's meant to. First reason Christians are to endure, no matter the cost, there will be a reclamation. Second thing, there's going to be a fall. Look at verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Okay, this is loaded with imagery, right? First of all, we have some foreshadowing of what's going to come in Revelation 17 to 18. So we're going to get two big chapters on this lady, Babylon. It's not really unpacked here. It's, it's all dropped on us in one verse. So how would we sum this up? Well, in, in the context of Revelation, this lady represents this world system of government, culture, and economy united against God and his ways. The system of government, culture, and economy united against God and his ways. Why does she look like a prostitute? Because she does, and she's called that later. Why? Well, if you notice in the Bible, spirituality is often illustrated by sexuality. Here's, here's one way. Uh, what's, what's God called in relationship to his people often? He's the husband. It's part of it, right? He's the husband. And so his people are the bride. And so God actually says in the law, my name is Jealous. And for, for most times and places, right, jealousy, that's not good. But there's a, there's a few contexts where it's absolutely appropriate, and a marriage covenant would be one. So God is jealous for your worship. And so many, many times, idolatry is actually called adultery. Because it's the core adultery. It's a spiritual adultery, not being devoted to our God. And so we see throughout the Bible also that the hearts worshiping a false god will often lead to a broken expression of sexuality. And so that's all here in this imagery. The system of government, culture, economy is like this lavish prostitute. And what's she pouring to everyone? She's pouring out wine, right? And, and do you see what it's like? The wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 
what does that communicate to you, right? Uh, the world is just hungry for this drink. It's a drink that um, is a hunger for things that replace God, that hunger for things that God has forbidden, and entire systems of human workings that promote this and push this. Can't you sense the allure? Can you sense it? Can you feel the pressure? All these invitations to compromise on our endurance in following Christ. And just in one verse here, what's the angel say? What's going to happen to the system? It's going to fall. It's going to fall. Fallen, fallen. Now, why does it help you to know that? Well, your heart is in this uh, tension, right? Every day, every moment, every choice. Uh, You deeply want to be happy, don't you? You deeply want to be satisfied. And so I would, I would assert that pretty much every choice you've ever made was in pursuit of that. Sometimes you don't like all your options, right? You think, well, I don't want to go to work. That doesn't make me happy. I'm going to go anyway. Yeah, but you wanted to go to work more than you wanted to get fired. You didn't like your options. So you're pursuing. What, what is it that's going to satisfy me? And, and why, do the, why do the nations of the earth go to this symbolic woman, Babylon, this great world system? Why, why are they running to her? What, what looks, you know, she's not like pouring out black tar, right, that stinks. Uh, what, what is she giving? What's it, what's it seem like? Oh, it's wine, Right? It's delicious. It's exhilarating. It's thrilling. It looks so good. Why would you go drink it? Because that's what's going to make me happy. That's what's going to satisfy me. And guess what the truth is? It won't. It won't. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon. The stock is going to crash. The allure will quickly spoil. The drink will not satisfy. Read Isaiah 55. God says, come to me. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, I'll feed you. I'll drink. I'll I'll give you good drink. I'll satisfy you. Come to me. But here, this system, it's going to fall. Look at 1 John 2, kind of a parallel verse to this one. Same author, by the way, right? 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That, that's the lady. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. Do you see that word, word desire, right? There it is, the wine, I want this. The flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. It's not from the Father, it's the world. Verse 17, and the world is what? Passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The system of godlessness, whether it's political, economic, cultural, the system, it's against the gospel and the call of the gospel. It's going to fall. Does that help you? Does that help you endure? It should. If you're listening and the, the wine is offered in whatever way it's offered in a million ways, if you know, you know what, 
The system's going to fall. It won't satisfy me. It's, it's passing away. It's going to be judged. No, there's a, there's a better satisfaction. Those who do the will of, the, of God abide forever. I have a different home. I have a different joy. It'll help you endure. First of all, endure because of the reclamation. God's going to reclaim his, his, his creation. Number two, endure because of the impending fall. Now here's one of the hardest ones, the drink. <clears throat> I'll just read these verses again, verses 9 to 11. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, whoever receives the mark... Of its name. There's a little bit of a sandwich idea here, right? You don't want to receive the mark. That was in verse 9 and then verse 11. You don't want to receive the mark. And in the middle was what happens if you do receive the mark. So we've talked about the mark of the beast before in past weeks. I'm not going to go about it, go after again in detail. Um, but, But I will say this it's the opposite of faithful endurance. That's what it is. It's the opposite of faithful endurance. And I just want to be really clear here. This is not something you get on accident. Okay? This is not something the bad guys can come along with a van and, like, have a paintball gun, you know, and shoot you with the mark of the beast. And now it it hits you in the forehead, and now you're out. You know, Jesus doesn't love you anymore. Um, It's not something that's only physical. It's not something that um, you can get on accident. That is reading this entirely the wrong way. It's a, it, it gets at a spiritual reality. Remember, God has a mark for his people as well. We see it in the beginning of this chapter. For those who trust Christ, his name is written on their foreheads. So, so when you pray to trust Christ, like I didn't look at your head to go, oh, is the name going to show up? You know, Oh, it's not there. I don't think you really believed. Well, that's ridiculous. No, that's a symbol of God saying, I've written my name on you. I will keep you. I know you. You're mine. And so we're supposed to rejoice in our safety that God has marked us, claimed us, identified us as his. It's the same way in the reverse. It's not something just in the future that you got to make sure you don't, you, know, you don't get the chip or the whatever. It's, it's not it. It could be expressed in certain ways. Like there are some nations right now, you have to put your religion on your identity card. And if you put Christian, life could go hard for you. And if you put, maybe you'd be tempted to not put Christian. So that that could be like a physical reality. But the core is spiritual. And the question is this, who owns you? Who do you worship? Who do you live for? Do you trust and love and follow Jesus to the point that you're willing to endure for him faithfully no matter the cost? If that's you, you're marked by the Father. You belong to him. But if you find yourself saying, the cost is too high, I'd rather have the world. I'm not really into Jesus anymore. I don't really want to follow him according to his word. I'll kind of make up my own way. That's the picture 
of the mark. It's those who do not have Christ. It's those who have not put their faith in Christ and continue to walk with him. That's what the mark means. And so you begin to see why the middle of these verses, verse 10, is so strong. You see a a play on words, don't you? Uh, What was the lady pouring out? Wine. It looks so good. Well, guess who else is pouring a drink? God is pouring a drink. And it's the idea where the punishment fits the crime. If you drink the lady's wine and keep drinking it, that's compromising the gospel and its call. You keep drinking that wine, guess what else you're going to be drinking? You'll be drinking God's wine. And in this case, did you see what it was? Verse 10, the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Did you, did you see the repeat? What is God pouring out here in this symbolism of wine? Wrath and anger. And I got to tell you, right? Verse 10 is one of the most sober, terrifying verses in all of the Bible. If you don't have Christ on the day of judgment, verse 10, you'll drink of the wine of God's wrath, pull forward full strength in the cup of his anger, and be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It's almost hard even to read those words, isn't it? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, this is obviously, right, a picture of hell. This is a picture of hell. Torment, that means it is not enjoyable. I'm understating that, okay? Um, The torment of justice done in response to the cosmic treason of sin. How, How does your view of justice work? Do you think somebody should pay the same penalty for stealing a candy bar as for stealing a car? I hope you would say no. And why would you say no? You'd say no because the punishment has to fit the crime, and we base the severity of the crime based on the value of the thing sinned against. At least we should. The value of the thing sinned against should determine the severity of the penalty. You all believe that already. When you looked at God, who is of eternal, infinite value, And you said to him in your heart, and you've said it, so have I. I don't think you're that good. I don't think your word's true. I'm replacing you. And you not only did it in a core way, you've lived it out thousands of ways. And so have I. And I begin to ponder that I've sinned against an eternal, infinite God, nearly infinitely, What kind of a punishment do I deserve? This verse is no place for self-righteousness, right? There should never be some sort of Christian pastor going, ha, you evil people, you know, you're all going to go to hell. It it should never go like that. We We should all tremble because I deserve this on my own. 
Some of you might be tempted to think, you know what, I, I can't believe in a God like this. This is not the God I believe in. God is love. Did any of you have that thought go through your mind? God is love. You don't have to raise your hand. Um, you thought, but, but it's not the God I believe in. God is love. Do you realize, my friends, that the same apostle who wrote those words, God is love, wrote Revelation 14? He did. And so if your view of God being love means that God has no wrath, you may have misunderstood what it means that God is love. I don't have a ton of time for this, but I want to go into a little bit. God is love in part points us to the reality that God is triune and God loves his glory. You know, our God is so glorious as to, he he was love before creation. Did you know that? Otherwise, you have a little bit of a dependent God who can't be loved until he makes things, and then he's dependent on the things he makes to be God. You realize that's kind of a thing? But a triune God, that's different. No, he has been eternally loved because the Father loves the Son, loves to glorify the Son. The Son eternally loves the Father. When asked about the cross, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. That's, that's why I'm going. He loves the glory of his Father, the Spirit the person of their love, applying their love to God's people. God is love. He loves his glory in his triune beauty. And in the sufficiency of that glory, oh, he is love to his people, right? He has sent his son for us to die on a cross in our place after living the perfect life so that all who trust Christ in the victory of his resurrection, could be united to the Son of God and be loved by the Father as the Son is loved by the Father because they're in Christ and respond with a love for the Father like the Son has for the Father. When God loves you, he brings you into his love for himself. But I want to tell you this. You you always see the flip side of what you love and what you hate, don't you? It's not a perfect illustration, but do you love your family? What would be stirred up in your heart if someone wanted to ruin your family? Would you say, oh, hey, come on in, have your way, I'm a loving person? Is that what you'd do? That is certainly not what you would do, nor should it be, nor should it be what you would do, because you love your family. You know what we're going to see? We're going to see what God loves when he pours out his wrath. We're going to see it. He loves his glory. He loves the glory of his son, whom people have denied. The son loves the glory of his father, whom people have despised. The spirit loves to inspire worship. The spirit's been rejected. And God will show you what he loves. He loves his glory. He loves his people. And so here it comes in this picture. What are we to do with this? Well, again, there's no room for self-righteousness here. Run to the gospel again. (laughs) Run to Jesus again. Run to who he is again. And draw your friends there to him. You know, in in this passage, we have angels giving sermons. Uh, How many of you want to give the sermons these angels are giving? I don't think most of you do. And if you take this literally, you can take a load off and be like, well, I'm glad I don't have to do it. The angel will come. I'm not sure how this is supposed, that, that's the way this is supposed to work. 
I'm not encouraging you to necessarily take your friend to coffee and read these exact words to them. Although the, that wouldn't necessarily be inappropriate. It's God's word. Are you, are you ashamed of this page? God's not. Have you ever had a communication with somebody about actually God and his holiness and his law for how we ought to live? And then here, I, use your own testimony. Have you ever shared with somebody how you believe in God's law but you haven't kept it? And you've in your heart wondered, like, what do I do with that? And then you heard the gospel and you bring up how Jesus kept the law for you and paid for your sins on the cross and rose from the dead and you found relief in him and forgiveness in him, transformation in him. Have you shared the gospel with anybody lately? Let this encourage you to do that. But this picture is meant to motivate us to endure. You know, if you're tempted to compromise on the gospel or its call and you remember the smoke of torment going up forever, what does it do? Does it sober you a little bit? Does it, does it harden you a little bit and say, you know what, I'm going to keep going? That's what it's meant to do. And Jesus did talk like this. Look at Mark 8.38. Mark 8.38. Whoever is ashamed of me. And I think in our cultural moment, the next words are even more important. Whoever is ashamed of me and of what? My words. In this adulterous, there it is again, right? In sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. That's one of the main things I don't want in my life. I don't want Jesus to come back and have him be ashamed of me. I want him to say, well done. So the drink is is meant to enable our endurance. We've got two more. Now we're going to see the rest, the rest. Verses 12 to 13, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Christ. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, behold, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. This is such an important idea to me. In the year 2020, have you noticed your heart longing for rest? Rest. Have, have you heard your subconscious saying, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. Have you ever heard that voice? Longing for rest. We want a place, don't we? A place of beauty of safety, of security, of peace. We want a time where we don't have to feel like we have to be heroic anymore. We have a time where we don't have to be discerning anymore. We don't have to be in controversy anymore. We don't, we don't want to be in confrontation anymore. I'm tired. I want to rest. And then this passage says, there will be a celebratory rest for God's people. Even now at death, that Rest begins. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Whatever that word paradise means, it doesn't mean underwhelming. It doesn't mean boring. It doesn't mean like, oh, I was hoping for more. 
It's not like when you save up and you go to Disneyland and then you realize, I spent two hours standing in line with a crying toddler. Why? No, this rest, this will thrill you. This will satisfy you. This will be amazing. It'll meet all your heart's desire. One day, Christian, you will have the rest you long for in greater measure than you can imagine. Your deeds will follow. What are those deeds? It's not deeds that earn salvation. It's not deeds of perfection, but it's the reality of your faithful endurance. And you will receive the kingdom God has promised you. Are any of you excited about that rest this morning? It'll help you endure. Keep going. The rest is coming. And it'll be a celebration like a harvest. And that takes us into the next vision. Verses 14 to 16. Then I looked, a white cloud, somebody seated on the cloud like a son of man with a golden crown, a sharp sickle in his hand. And the angel says, reap. So he goes and reaps. And to be honest, there's different, well, it's Revelation, right? So, of course, there's different theories on how to interpret this verse. That's always true. Um, Commentators I'm looking at, there were some different interpretations, but I think the best one is, the one that's most convincing to me, is this is Jesus coming for his people, okay? The first ones ought to be obvious. We've seen this over and over again. Who's the son of man? Daniel 7. What did Jesus call himself in the Gospels? This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Coming on the clouds. Does that mean he's like surfing an actual cloud? Well, that would be cool, but it, it means he's coming in the glory of God, in authority, and power, Okay, and he's got a crown on. He has a, he's the king, the king of kings. He's coming in victory, and he puts in the sickle and reap. You, you realize in the Gospels, many times Jesus says, I'm going to come and gather my wheat into my barn. It's just another one of those symbols. Jesus says to his disciples in John, I'm going to make a place for you. I'm going to come back for you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And so here's this symbol of Jesus coming and gathering all his people and taking them into his barn. He's going to, his, his barn, he's going to come for you. And in the ancient world, how do you feel when it's harvest time? Well, it's party time. All, all the food, all the drink, all the, here it is. Let's celebrate. Let's have a feast. Let's get together. Let's eat. I mean, a fountain of life, we know this very well. We miss it, don't we? What do we do when we want to celebrate something? Get together and we... Eat. That's why in the Greek, angel also means taco guy. <laughs> right? He comes and we fellowship and we eat, we drink. This is the celebration of your rest when Jesus comes. Listen to the language from Isaiah 9. We usually read this as a Christmas passage. But you know, Christmas really finds its fulfillment at the second coming. Look at Isaiah 9.3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the what? At the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken. You see the rescue there? The celebration of harvest? And then these famous verses. Verse 6. Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. That will come perfectly true in all its explicit reality when Jesus returns. Can I get an amen? You want to enjoy that harvest? Endure. 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 Your rest is coming. 
Finally, the reckoning, 17 to 20. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. He began swinging his sickle, and you get this imagery of grapes. And of course, if you wanted wine back then, you would put the grapes down, and then you would walk on them, and the juice would flow, and that's how you made your wine. And this is a picture of judgment, I'm sure, because it's thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And then in verse 20, the winepress was trodden outside the city. So did not make it into the city. The blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. I'm not going to go into the details of 1,600, 40 times 40, tall as a horse. Um, it's meant to be a shocking picture, isn't it? You're not meant to read that and go, oh, no big deal. You probably misread it if it was like that. You meant to see this and go, oh, have mercy. Because this is the reckoning. God's wrath being stored up for so long. He's been so patient. Jesus comes first as a servant. He comes back next time as a king and a judge. And it's all poured out. Wrath that we dare not underestimate. You know, this week as I was looking at this passage, I, br I briefly perused some surveys about what people think about hell. It's kind of interesting. I was a little bit surprised to see most people today still believe in hell. Almost nobody thinks they're going there. With shocking numbers. Shocking numbers. You get to maybe, I mean, it depends on the poll and the survey, right, and which year exactly. But let's say it's like two-thirds, three-fourths believe in hell. And then when you think about what people believe about who's going to be there, it's like 10% will be there, 5% will be there. It's like, it's like it's just an empty room, maybe with a couple people. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. It's amazing we could believe that there should be something like that that brings final justice. There will be something like that. It's, it's, it's on our conscience somehow. And yet we think, oh, it won't be me. Because <laughs> I'm good, right? Aren't you good? I mean, you keep your own standard at least, right? You hate it when people gossip about you, but you would never, you know. You'd never do what you hate when other people do. It's amazing. It's amazing. Oh, may the Holy Spirit help us be honest with ourselves and look to the gospel. And we could wonder why Revelation uses this imagery. Uh, it's an echo like nearly everything in, in Revelation from the Old Testament. So I'm just going to read to you Isaiah 63, and you can hear it from God's own words. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I've trodden the winepress alone. 
from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, there was no one to help. I was appalled, there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. But look what happens in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. There will be a reckoning when Jesus returns. God's enemies will be judged. His people will be vindicated. One more thing I want to think with you before we're done. What did Jesus pray in the garden before he went to the cross? Remember? I mean, he says his soul is in distress. Here's this man who, despite every enmity, every temptation, is always composed and in control. And then he reaches the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross, and he's coming undone. He's sweating blood. He's trembling. He's pleading with God. He's in distress. Remember what he prays? Let this cup pass from me. Some theologians have said there God was letting Jesus know a little foretaste of what the cross would be like. And there Jesus is all the more glorified because he didn't just go to the cross and have have it drop on him like he didn't know. No, he he knew. And this question echoed for Jesus because as he's praying, what are his disciples doing? Do you remember? They're sleeping. And what are they going to do when the soldiers come after that? They're going to run. And so this question lands on Jesus. Will you suffer this for them? Will you suffer this for me? That's what I would ask. What did Jesus say when the soldiers came and Peter pulled out his sword? What did Jesus say, John 18, 11? So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. What? Shall I not drink the cup of wrath the Father has given me? It's just awesome to me that with all this devastation of the wrath of God we see in Revelation 14, The one who brings it was first the one who drank it. His blood was spilt outside the city. He endured the wrath of God in the place of his people. We don't have to fear those who are in Christ. The wrath of God at his return, as awful as it is because we know It's already been poured out in as far as we're concerned.
Do you realize how Jesus endured for you? He endured for you. In this, we know the love of God, Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now look at verse 9, so precious in the face of Revelation 14. Since then, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're invited. The angels in this passage invite you. I invite you. God himself invites you. See his holiness and the reality of his justice and look to what he's done for you in Jesus. Trust yourself to Christ. Be made right with God. Be reconciled. Have the debt paid. Be forgiven. Know his great love for you. Be his child. Trust him today. And if you are a Christian, this chapter is a call to do what? Endure. Endure. Be faithful to the truth of the gospel as revealed in the Bible. And don't let up, no matter the pressure, no matter the cost. Endure. Be faithful to the call of the gospel to trust Christ and live for him. In love for him, for his glory, no matter the cost, endure, because there will be a reclamation. He'll win his creation back. Endure because the world system will fall. Endure because there's a horrid drink for those who don't have Christ. Endure because there there will be a wonderful rest for those who do. Endure because there will be a reckoning. Endure because Jesus endured for you, and he still endures with you. Let's pray. Our God, uh, it's a hard word. Uh, We pray, Lord, that your spirit would do with your word as you please for your glory in all who hear this word. Um, Lift our hearts to you, Lord, that um, you would turn us to you, to, to fear you, to trust you, to love you, to believe your promises, and to endure um, with our faith in Christ, keeping his commands. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel and the nature of your endurance for your people. We thank you that we've been so loved. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.